is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 186 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am really, really excited to share this episode with you because I have Claire Taylor, and we are talking all about the Enneagram. But not only that, it is just generally speaking a hilarious episode, so I really hope that you enjoy it today. But first to last week's question, which was, how do you structure your to-do list? Karen Heenan said, I change it up. Sometimes it's a straight list, but if there isn't a lot going on, I categorize it. Writing, errands, housework, craft work, and try to do one from each group before moving on. Jack underscore K dot Boyles says, what I do is have a list in my head, then panic. (laughs) Oh, that uh, speaks to me. Kerry Hodiski said, I keep a bullet journal that never leaves my side. I also have an all the things notebook for expanded notes, ideas, household chores, errands, etc. Heather Button said, "Uh, but I have a question for you. How do you track your words edited? I've been looking for a marker. Line edits and proofreading is easy enough. I can do words per hour spent, but in a developmental edit, how do you track it? Oh, okay. Well, that's an interesting... (laughs) That was unexpected. Uh, Okay. So for me, what I do is I... I track chapters complete. So um, I typically edit uh, from front to back. I know that if you're doing a developmental edit and you're jumping all over the place, that is harder to do. Uh, But for me, I will often create like a list of all of the edits that need to be done in each chapter or I'll just attack it. Most of the time I just start attacking. Um, And so I will go from chapter one all the way through the end. And Scrivener will tell you how many words you've added. So if I add words during the edit, I count those as words written. Uh, And once I complete a chapter, that then is the amount of words that I've edited. Um, So yeah, that's how I track it. Okay, so the the question of the week this week is, what have you enjoyed doing this year? Maybe it's something new, maybe it's something different. Maybe it's your same old, like, favourite uh, go-to activity that brings you joy. So, yeah, tell me what you have enjoyed doing this year. The book recommendation of the week this week is The Gilded Wolves by Roshani Chokshi. I'm recommending this one because we're, we're going to study this one in the next Patreon masterclass, um, but also because it was actually fantastic. It is a historical uh, kind of low fantasy set in Paris uh, heist. And it's got predominantly like the found family trope. That's the trope that we're studying this time. And it was exquisite. The writing was beautiful. I've actually read other books by Roshani and loved her writing. Uh, But this was really beautiful. I loved the characterization. I loved the found family. Um, I loved the heist and there was puzzles in there and it was complex and it was just super fun. Uh, And the twist at the end, bloody fucking cliffhangers. (laughs) Clever writers doing cliffhangers, damn it. Um, Yeah, it was fantastic. So I really recommend uh, having a a read, giving a read, doing a read. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm so tired. (laughs) Whatever, just read the book, okay? (laughs) Okay, so in personal news and update then, I'm feeling a little bit hoarse (laughs) and husky this morning. I mean, only a little bit, uh, and it's just exhaustion. I am back from Seville. This is actually the latest I've ever left a podcast recording. Um, uh, It is Sunday the 16th of April, and this is going to go out today to patrons. (laughs) 
God. I was in a like f- zombie fog yesterday of just pure exhaustion. It really was a reminder of uh, what people time does to me. So I, today, now I'm not feeling so exhausted, I'm absolutely buzzed off my tartars. I absolutely loved Seville. It was so fucking good. Um, Heidi and all of the organisers did an incredible job. I met some absolutely amazing people and hopefully made some new friends. And yeah, I loved it. And more than anything, (laughs) it was a reminder that I really do love the stage. I think we all know this by now, uh, but I do. I love um, I love being on the stage. And if I think about it, I don't think that's a real surprise. If you go back and look at my history, I don't, I don't, if you've l- listened to the podcast for a long time, you'll know that I used to act as a child uh, and I was on TV and I used to do voiceover work. Uh, but, for, you know, I was bullied for a long time and sort of dropped away from that and stopped doing it. And the opportunities that this industry has afforded me in terms of speaking has really reminded me that I love the stage and I love watching people's reactions, making people laugh, helping people to have realisations and just having that opportunity in Seville uh, after the one that I did in September was a real reminder that I fucking love talking to people on stage. And so, yeah, very, very grateful uh, to have had that opportunity. And it also is a reminder... (laughs) that the people inside destroys me the first day. So I spoke, I was the last session on the last day. And um, after the first day, I was so tired that I didn't even speak to my wife. Like before I went to sleep, I just text and was like, I I need to, I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm sorry. Good night. I love you. (laughs) That's how tired I was. And I don't think that has ever happened when I've gone away. But, you know, I spend most of my time on my own. So of course, like going and spending hours and hours and hours. I think it was like 7.30 in the morning until midnight I was with people. So I was just destroyed. <laughs> um, but it was fantastic. And oh, I got to meet some new people um, that I haven't met kind of that have been in, in the industry for a while. And it was just so wonderful. And I've come away and I, despite like having puffy eyes today... <laughs> and feeling super exhausted I am also rejuvenated and feeling wonderful so it was so lovely to see all of you um yeah and and a reminder that I just love this industry and look at me I'm like gushing I just I love I love you all I love everyone (laughs) I'm still dead on the inside there okay uh anyway So yeah, that was wonderful. And I am between two conferences. So I am going to London Book Fair on Tuesday and on Wednesday. And I will be speaking, I think it's on the, I think I'm speaking on the Wednesday. Yeah, I better check that one. But that one's at um, the Writer's Summit, which is sort of an adjacent conference run at the same time. Well, usually it's run a day before actually. Uh, But yes, so I'm speaking at that one this year, which is fantastic. I'm excited for that. I'm on a panel with a few different authors, Claire Lydon, uh, J.D. Kirk, and I'm not sure there's a couple of others on, on the panel as well. So I'm excited for that. Um, I've got some other exciting news, but I can't, I don't think I can talk about that one just yet, but I will be at other conferences this year. And that is all I'm going to say for now. Um, and yeah, what else? I mean, I really naively... <laughs> what an idiot thought that I might be able to get some edits done (laughs) I'm just laughing at my 
I'm so naive. Or optimistic, one or the other. I I think it's I think it's like the pure optimism of, yeah, I can just do all the things. Can you though, Sachin? Can you? No, no, you cannot. So I really stupidly thought I would be able to focus on doing edits whilst I was um in uh, Seville and of course <laughs> I absolutely could not. I did uh, write half of next week's episode and I did all of the kind of easy like inline stuff on the plane to Seville but uh, clearly I cannot do any more. Now <clears throat> the session that I gave was Prose in the Market uh, which is kind of a hybrid of the anatomy of prose and uh, the anatomy of a bestseller and it, I was so encouraged by all of the lovely comments that I think I'm going to do something more with that content. So if you, I know a couple of people were there and I'm more upset that they missed it. Um, so I think I'm going to create something more deeper and uh, that I will talk about more that more in June because that's the slot uh, that I've given it. So in terms of this week, before I speak to you next, it is London Book Fair. Um, and today is Sunday and tomorrow I need to try and get some edits done uh, on uh, a Romance and Ruin, which a game of Romance and Ruin, which is book two. I'm still working on the back end infrastructure stuff. And one of the most magical things about Seville is that it not only the AI content was really positive and kind of optimistic, it was, it filled me with optimism. Like I know that we can all get a little scared sometimes of AI, but actually for once, I kind of really feel like the whole conference gave me permission to be aggressive. Um, and I know that that's a word that not everybody likes, but naturally as somebody who is um, everyone drink number one competition but also yellow dominant I am an aggressive person and I want to go after my goals aggressively and for whatever reason I really feel like I've been playing small I read um, a book by Tara Ma, whatever it was anyway called Playing Big uh, years ago and um, I, in fact I read it how strange is this I, I was listening to the audiobook whilst I was at 20 Books Edinburgh and it's funny that it comes back round to me this time after going to 20 Books Seville. And I finally feel like I'm ready to go for my goals as aggressively as I want to. And so I'm just excited. I don't know that I know what will change as a result of that. But I just know that I haven't felt this uh, like amped up in a really long time so, and that was because of Seville and if you know this is encouragement to you to go to any of the 20 books conferences or any of the conferences really on the circuit because just being with your tribe and with your people is this some kind of magical drug shit seriously like it's so good for the soul so yeah I highly recommend that um Okay, I think that's kind of it from me. My brain is still a bit uh, foggy after all the people and, and not really sleeping because of late flights and early flights and all the rest of it. One thing I do want to add is that uh, for patrons, uh, Claire Taylor has very kindly given um, a discount, taking uh, $66 off the price of her an uh, antagonists of the Enneagram course. So it's only $33 and you will be able to find the discount code in the Patreon only show notes. Uh, so yeah, if you uh, want to grab her course, then please do. Okay, moving on. 
Rebel of the week this week is Eden. Eden says, back in November, I was up in Scotland to see my Irish nanny. The one uh, of smuggling cigarettes and karate chopping fame. And whilst I was there, I told her that I've some of my, uh, I've told some of my friends about those stories. And she said, well, there's plenty more where that came from. Oh, I adopt, can I just like adopt your nan? please. So my nanny has never really uh, had much of a filter when it comes to people she doesn't like. This story takes place around 1950 in Northern Ireland when nanny was a teenager. Oh my god, it's a nanny story! <laughs> so excited! At the time, cars weren't widely as widely available as they are today, so the quickest way to travel any great distance was by ferry. Well, bright and early on a Saturday morning, my great-grandmother would rouse my nanny and her younger sister out of bed and walk the relatively short distance from Muff. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, Eden says, I know, and they have a scuba... No! <laughs> they have a scuba diving club called the Muff Divers. <laughs> Get a grip, get a grip. So they would walk the relatively short distance from Muff to Colmore to catch the ferry to Derry, where all good shops were. Now, Nanny has never been a fan of exercise, especially when it came at the cost of a good lion. So these Saturday expeditions often didn't leave her in the best of moods. She was certainly not in the mood one drizzly October morning for a very drunk man who insisted on being as loud and annoying as annoying as possible as they waited for the ferry. Well... My nanny, being who she is, decided to take matters into her own hands when this fellow decided he wanted to stand on a bank and relieve himself as the ferry was arriving. Oh my, what the f- Oh my god. Uh, nanny spotted her chance. Oh, oh. <laughs> nanny spotted her chance and barreled into him. <laughs> sending him tumbling down the bank trousers round his ankles and into the water below. <laughs> what a legend. Oh my God, I so desperately want to meet your nan. Oh, now, before I get my dear nanny in trouble, I've just got the mental image of this man with his trousers by his ankles rolling down a bank. Oh my goodness me. Now, before I get my dear nanny in trouble, I'd like to point out that the River Foyle is a relatively shallow river of about five metres. Near the riverbank, it's only about a metre or so, but there is a thick layer of very sticky knee-deep knee mud, which, while not fatal, is tricky to wade through even at the best of times. So while the ferry arrived and everyone else got on, this bedraggled, muddy, not to mention probably rather surprised drunk man was desperately wading through the mud like some creature from the Black Lagoon. I can only imagine what the ferry divers thought. Sorry, the ferry drivers thought. Well, I don't have to imagine because they decided to leave him behind. And <laughs> who can blame them? Apparently, when it was clear that the ferry wasn't going to wait, the drunk man started using rather colourful language. But Nanny just looked back at him and waved until he disappeared from view. Oh, my God. I fucking love your Nan. She is incredible. What an actual legend. Why has she not written a book? Why have you not written a book about your Nan? She's amazing.
If you would like to be a rebel of the week, or if you have a nana who's a rebel, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion. Something big, something small, or something in between. And like I say, it doesn't even need to be your rebellion. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Two new patrons this week, Kylie Hillman and Chris Holcomb. Thank you so much and welcome to both of you. A huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. I really, really appreciate your support. It helps to keep the show running and it also makes my sig happy, okay? Everyone drink, but it does. It makes me feel like what I do is worthwhile and helping you, so thank you so much. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like Poison and Prose, which is our monthly writing sprints Q&A session, uh, the movie nights, which are quarterly, the Slack group community, which is our thriving community in Slack chat where you get access to me and a bunch of other writers who also do coordinating events uh, like the critique group, which is nothing to do with me, but those, those guys all organize it. And also the Patreon quarterly masterclasses where we deconstruct a trope or a book um, and we take all of the tools from those uh, books and show you how to use them. Then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, that's it from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I'm kind of getting excited today because I am joined by Claire Taylor. Claire is a humor and mystery author, a certified Enneagram consultant for creatives, and the owner of FFS Media. She loves making people laugh and helping authors build a personalized career that is as unique as they are. Through FFS Media, she offers masterclasses, workshops, courses, and consulting on both author life and storytelling. She writes as H. Claire Taylor, under her humor brand, Brock Bloodworth for Urban Fantasy, Nova Nelson for Paranormal Cozy Mystery, and Claire Feeney for Crime Fiction. Hello and welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I'm excited. I'm so excited to have you. I've listened to you and Brian. I've seen you with <laughs> Becca talking and I've read your book as well. So I am curious because I, I'm skeptical, but I want to be converted. I, I want to leave this podcast being fully like in the Enneagram gang. Um, but before we do that, can you tell everyone a little bit about you and your journey and kind of how you got to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. I, I have been writing basically since I was a kid and I gave in and learned handwriting because I was very reluctant to do it. Um, so I've been writing stories and fiction and I, I think of myself more as a fiction writer, but I do this Enneagram consulting on the side. So I studied it in college, of course, um, got my heart tread on in college about writing, gave it up for a few years, came back to it. Um, so then I started publishing independently in 2014 and my friend Alyssa Archer introduced me to the whole indie world. She's still my editor for some of my humor stuff today, but she introduced me to all of the indie world and I started learning. I met Brian in 2015, I think, Brian Cohen, um, who's now we, you know, co-host the Sell More Book Show together. 
and it just sort of took off and I started publishing these books and then I kept hitting these walls. <laughs> I kept going, wait, I don't really know this character that well. And you hear, you know, writing coaches and that sort of thing say, well, you have to know their motivation. What do they want? And it's kind of like, I don't, I don't know. They want to win the game. You know, they want to do these things. And I, I couldn't really get to the heart of what that motivation was. And Hold then, up though, because winning the game to someone who's number one competition is the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, winning the game is good, but what it makes them feel if they win versus what it makes them feel if they don't, that's what I was okay. trying to get at. And I couldn't really, I was poking around. I couldn't get it. So meanwhile, I was, I've been in this mastermind for seven years with other authors and we had talked about the Enneagram and now I had been introduced to the Enneagram in high school. My mom and my sister learned about it through their church and they came and told me what I was. And I was like, that's not me. You don't know me. Um, and so I completely rejected it at first. They made me take a test. I mistyped on the test for various reasons, but when you mistype and you read your type, you're like, well, that's stupid. That's useless. Right. I, I I'm not going to do anything with that information. Um, cause it, it hasn't clicked yet. So it didn't click with me until years, years later, when I'm in this mastermind, we start talking about it and I realize what my type actually is. And I go, oh shit. Okay. Yes. This explains a lot. Um, this is why I am miserable and making myself miserable. Cool. So it became a language that we use to talk to each other because I'm not going to give advice to someone who's not, you know, that, that I would want to take to someone who's not my same type. And so once you start to learn what everyone's different motivation is, you can tap into that and give better advice. So it started in the mastermind. And then I was like, okay, I need to start typing my characters. So I started typing my characters. Everything got easier <laughs> Every, immediately. There aren't many writing hacks, you know, like some of it is like, you just have to write more and you'll get better. You have to read more, you'll get better. But this felt a little bit like a hack in that once I had assigned that motivation um, of their Enneagram type, I was like, oh, this is it. So I started using it for my own writing. And then um, people were calling me, you know, friends and stuff for story advice and brainstorming and that sort of thing. And I found myself using it a lot more for their stories. And then I was like, maybe I should just charge for this, <laughs> frankly. Um, but maybe I should make this like a, a, a service so that it's not just like people who know me who can have access to this. So I started the story alignment uh, service that I still do. It's a consulting service uh, for story because I also was an editor for years. So it's sort of a story fix it, you know, story doctor sort of service, but it has that Enneagram component. And then in those calls, I kept having people be like, wait, but what type am I? We're talking about what characters, but wait, couldn't this apply to how I make decisions in my business? I'm like, well, yes, it could, but we're talking about story. You know, I kept trying to separate it. Um, and then finally I created the author alignment service and some courses on the Enneagram and that sort of thing. Cause it was just like, this is easier. I can't be everywhere at once. I'm just going to make it easier for everyone. So I'm immediately going to throw out the, 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 the order of the questions because I'm already curious about mistyping because <laughs> I think that's what happened to me. So uh -huh. I typed originally as, um, the achiever. I think that's the three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of, and I, you'll have to forgive me because I haven't memorized the whole book, but I'm sure the achiever had some fears around like self-worth and like not being enough. And going through strengths, I have just come out of the other side of realizing that like, I didn't love myself. I didn't value myself. I didn't like give myself any worth or value. Um, and now I'm out the other side of that. Like 
I love the shit out of myself, right? Like so so when I t- when I took the test again prior to like emailing you and like talking to all my patrons about the Enneagram, I then typed as an eight. Um, and so like, talk to me about mistyping. Like, does this happen because of wounds or like trauma or like, why, why do we mistype and, and when does it change? Yeah. So that's, that is a really important question because people who get mistyped get out of alignment immediately because you're not aligning to the right thing. So, um, what can happen is, first of all, you're you're the same type your whole life, and it, you might look like some different types in different situations because under stress we tend to look like a our, what's called our stress type, and around friends and family or secure spaces we tend to look like our security type, which is also our growth type. That's a whole other thing, um, but so we have this type from a very early age. Uh, you know, debatably, we're born with it, or it shows around three or four, you know, the nature versus nurture debate, it doesn't matter. The point is that we don't change, but we have other overlays. So there's these things called Enneagram overlays. And so if we have a parent who's a different type, and they're a very strong personality, we will take on some of their qualities, and we can mistype as them. Or if we're in a, a culture that pushes specific values associated with a type, we can start to take on some of those type attributes and mistype that way. We can also mistype as our stress type. Um, If we're under stress and we take the test, we can uh, mistype based solely on the fact that we're taking a test and we're answering questions about ourselves and sometimes people don't know themselves that well. There are also a couple types that um, have a hard time landing on that type because for instance the peacemaker the nine can see everything from everyone's point of view that's one of these attributes so when you're answering a test you kind of feel like all of the people around you all the time it it can become an enmeshment sort of issue but you will answer it in that way of like well i can kind of see this in me i can kind of see that and then you get a bunch of very similar scores (laughs) Um, or you're a four, the individualist, and none of it really seems like you because you can't be quantified and summed up. You're too complex. So there are some inherent issues with that. But um, once you read, I think the test is a good way to get some scores that are pretty high for you and then read about those. Because that way, ultimately, like a test is just a moment in time you're capturing. Some people are just really bad at taking self-evaluation tests. Um, Not bad, but just it's not their strength. It's not being able to look at themselves or, you know, they're hypercritical of themselves and they focus on their worst attributes when they answer, or they focus on a time where they really messed up and they're answering all the questions based on this one, you know, situation rather than the totality of their life. So yeah, that's, that's how people mistype. And um, then there's another way, which is that people around them know the Enneagram and tell them what their type is over and over again. Um, and then they, and those people are wrong. (laughs) So there are, each type has three, uh, instincts or subtypes that sometimes look like other types. So that when you really get into the nitty gritty of it, that can be why there's a lot of like, uh, sort of similarities between three and eight, like you described. Yeah. So, and there's 
there's gender uh, influences. So a lot of women who are very strong are mistyped as eights or type very high as eights because um, women, people of color, anyone who is at a social disadvantage in society has had to learn to fight and challenge things. Just the nature of their existence yeah. is a challenge to the status quo. And so when they're answering these questions, a lot of the times they will mistype as eight. So that's something that someone like me has to be really careful about when saying you're probably an eight, I have to make sure that I, you know, I'm not falling into that sort of uh, bias. So I was just trying to find on my desktop the the diagram because I think I screenshotted it because I had yeah. So I've just found it. So I eight was the highest, and then five, and then four and three were like almost right at, at next to uh, five in terms of the the amount. And it's and the only three that were like really small were two, nine and six. So I'm like, I don't I mean, eight came out the most, but like, am I an eight? I don't know. Like some because when I read your book as well, some of the things in five seemed like familiar. And so so how does one figure it out? If if you are if you have tested across different ones and you and you've read read some stuff and lot things from each of them kind of appeal, like how do you because I was like when I read when, when I read the we should probably go back and actually explain what the Enneagram is, but <laughs> I'm like racing ahead because I'm just so interested. Um but when I read the book and you were talking about like fears, I'm like so like I know the thing I was I like had such a violent knee jerk reaction to uh, hearing that an eight was like doesn't want to be controlled or is afraid of it like it was fear of control. I'm like, I'm not afraid of controlled. I just won't be controlled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, me <laughs> of an eight, right? <laughs> it. It does have some undertones and overtones of the eight, yes. <laughs> oh my days. Oh, okay, let's go. Before you answer that, let's go back and explain what the Enneagram is. Yes, okay. All right, so the Enneagram is a personality framework uh, that you know, every there's all these pro personality profiles that are based on different things. The main criteria of this is core motivation. So that's what determines your type and a core motivation breaks down into a core fear and a core desire. And those are usually two sides of the same coin. So for an eight, the core fear is being harmed or controlled and the core desire is autonomy or you know, being powerful and strong. So those two <laughs> things, you can see how Aww. they, the fear and the desire are the same thing. Um, it's just the, the moving away from what you don't want, moving towards what you think will save you from that fear. Um, so mm. each type has one of those and we have all the types in us is important to know. There is a ah. little bit of every type in us, um, but there's one that is called our dominant type. And that is what is going to win out. So if you know you have a situation, if you are an eight, for example, and you have a situation where you can either do the thing you know to be morally correct or do the thing that will make sure no one can control and harm you, which one would you pick, right? Um, just as I'm an feeling uncomfortable right now, okay? <laughs> Just as an example, so my type as a type one, the reformer, I would pick the thing that is the right thing to do 
basically every time because I have that deep fear of being bad or corrupt. So that drives my actions in a different direction. Right? Even, if I, that, that, even if that put you like in an indenture to somebody. Yes. Oh! <laughs> okay, cool. If I, if I thought that the right thing to do, uh, and, and I... I struggle to think of a situation yeah, like that because yeah. I, I'm very, very high in eight as well. And when I take tests now, I test as an eight, but that's because I've worked through some of the one things and I'm, I just don't have time for people's hypocritical bullshit anymore. So that puts me in kind of a, a challenger position in a lot of situations where I don't care what you think we're going to do the right thing here. All right, okay. and I'm going to do the right thing and y'all are going to do the right thing. And it's not going to be whatever, you know, whatever suits your, you know, comfort zone. It's we're going to do the right thing. So that comes off as challenger energy. But and like I will step in, um, I will get in a physical altercation to defend my friends, which looks like a challenger. So could you have a villain who is a one based mm -hmm. on the fact that they believe their mo their moralistic viewpoint is correct. Absolutely. <gasps> Absolutely. Yeah, that is that is the zealot. And so each Enneagram type has nine levels of development. So we have three healthy at the top. That's like the really advanced. We've done some work. We're living the virtues of the type. There's the three average, which is where most people spend most of their time. Um, especially if you haven't done any sort of mindfulness or, you know, you're maybe a little overdue for therapy and you're just caught in these sort of subconscious patterns of the type. And then we have the three lowest ones, which are unhealthy and they are ugly. So every type has these ugly, unhealthy um, versions of themselves. And that's where you can write really fascinating villains. I, I actually have a course on Enneagram antagonists and villains mm. um, because it's just and it's it's probably the darkest thing I do because I'm like, so at this level, people will murder someone else. And, you know, like just, you know, <laughs> it's, it's very dark, but that's what happens. So every type has the potential to be super toxic and villainous. Um, and I love type one villains um, because they irritate me so much. We tend to be really irritated by the type of villain that is associated with our type because it's the thing we're trying so hard to suppress in ourselves. Um, so okay. it, it can really trigger. It so that's really so, trigger. so for an eight, it would be someone using power to control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And eights yeah. tend to be like you tend to see villains be eights because yeah. it's an easy thing to slip into of like, yeah. well, I'm just here for the power, you know, and that happens sometimes. But um I mean I I think of like a perfect eight and one example of how they can both be very villainous is i don't know if you've seen the movie there will be blood um it's daniel day lewis and paul dano and daniel day lewis plays an oil tycoon and paul dano plays a like small town preacher and they go ahead there's no there's no there's an anti-hero and the antagonist like they're both really insufferable but it's seeing an eight and a one square off for power and you know that the eight is going to win because that's their bread and butter yeah. right <laughs> you're playing the wrong game eli like you're a one you're, you're not going to win this so it it is just a fascinating interplay of those two types and i'm i'm obsessed with those two types obviously because i i am a one with a lot of eight and so i find that they're both these super powerhouses and very strong uh strong-minded types yeah. and so it can create a lot of friction Okay, I should probably actually ask you something that I had intended to ask you. 
<laughs> this is just it. so interesting. Um, okay. So first of all, why should a writer even be interested? Mm-hmm. Well, when you're writing, your characters are going to come into conflicts and they're going to have to make philosophical choices. And those philosophical choices are going to be based on what they value. So the Enneagram tells you what the type of your character values. Um, and that is really important because a lot of the time, especially early on in our fiction writing, we will put our protagonist maybe into a situation and it's, you know, kind of this uh, dilemma. What are they going to pick? What do they value? And we will pick for them what we would pick, but they are not our type. And then they go and do that. And that's when the reader goes, that character wouldn't do that, right? Instinctively, we know, because instinctively we have encountered all of these different motivations. And so when you start to learn about the Enneagram, one of the best things you can do is go, oh, that's my friend, this friend is, you know, a type five. Okay, that's sort of this model of like, oh, I'm starting to understand them, you know, and you can do it with fictional characters as well, even though fictional characters are probably almost never written with the Enneagram in mind. Really, um, you know, astute people instinctively see that and model these characters after the types. So you can say, oh, oh yeah, this is a, this kind of character. You know, I'm not going to make it, make them do the same thing that I would do in this situation. What would they do in this situation? So really getting that clarity between you and your characters just makes a much more compelling narrative and it also helps you decide what to do next and what challenges to throw their way because our our core fear is going to make certain things more challenging than others so what is challenging to a type three and what is triggering to a type three may not be triggering to a type seven and so you need to throw the right challenges their way and everything starts to come together and you're just like oh do i need to move them forward i know exactly what button to push to get them to the next scene or to get them you know, across the earth to this other place. I know exactly how to get them there now. Okay. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is theme and how um, your type, your own personal type as an author should help lead you in the direction of a certain set of themes. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that um, and sort of how you can get the theme to work for you and how I've kind of got a sub question about this, about writing character, writing characters who are your type. But if we start with theme, that will. Yeah. Okay. so um, theme in a story is what holds it together. Right. So we we hear as authors, okay, what's your theme? And it's like, I don't I don't know. How how do I pick it? Anything could be a theme. Right. Well, when you start to examine your Enneagram type, um, you can start to connect with themes that are natural to your type that naturally emerge from where you put your attention based on your type. So there are going to be these themes that emerge, that they're things that you're obsessed with throughout your life. You might not have even realized that these are things that you, uh, these are concepts you keep coming back to and considering that other people are not. <laughs> um, After I read your book and I was like, no, no, I can't, you know, I'm not an eight, I, I'm not any of these. And then I thought about my first series and uh, the fact that the whole theme of the series was about fate and having your fate controlled by somebody else. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Maybe one of these days we'll get down to your actual type, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Oh my God, I'm like the poster child. This is just so funny. Anyway, sorry, carry on. No, I love it. The Enneagram can't control me. Um, 
<laughs> I yeah, it's it's actually funny. I, eights do kind of have that reaction to the Enneagram. And a lot of the times um, I have very few eights that come and consult with me. And I, I suspect that's why. But um, OK, so what were we talking about? We were talking about themes. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. So we have these personal themes. So the Enneagram uh, directs our attention towards our fears and desires, right? These can become obsessions, our core fear and our core desire, and they start to infiltrate everything. Sometimes our type is called a lens, which I think is a really good way of um, explaining it because it's a lens that is letting certain data in, uh, certain stimulus in from the outside world and just sort of ignoring, filtering out other stuff that's not relevant to that core fear and desire. Um, so then our attention shifts towards certain things. So if you are a type three, which is the achiever and is all about um, success, failure, pretty much you're looking for what is my value um, and fearing that you have no value. So trying to create value through acts, uh, you become a human doer rather than a human being. And um, so, so the threes achieve a lot because they are so scared that there will be no worth inside, that they have no value. And so that is what shifts their focus towards where do I create value? And they become very good at seeing themselves through other people's eyes and saying, okay, how do I shape myself to become valuable to the people around me? Um, so that is where their attention is going. So they do achieve a lot of things because if you're like, hey, why don't you like a uh, come you know on vacation with me they're like uh no i have to finish this project right vacation what is that that's not even that's not making it through the lens um unless maybe the vacation is very instagrammable and that could help the image somehow but it you know so the threes are just looking at that and so these themes start to emerge for you know specific types and I actually just to save my brain i just highlighted it so for the three um worth is going to be a natural life theme happiness right in that when you ask a three what do you want they'll tell you what they think you want them to want <laughs> and so when you go what makes you happy it's like you know achieving and it's like does it because you keep doing it and you seem very unhappy anyway um <laughs> happiness contentment success support and uh threes feel like if they ask for support sometimes then that lessens their values uh, vanity, status, connection, acceptance, significance. These are all things that through that lens of the three, it's filtering those. My mom and is a three. No wonder I typed as <laughs> a three. Oh my God. <laughs> I knew we'd find a three. Oh my God. My mom's number one sig. And you just literally talked about like success, like worth, like, mm -hmm. oh my Oh, 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 I don't have these right now. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. All right, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm down with me. Yes. I've converted another. That makes my little my little preaching type one heart so happy. Oh wow. Yeah, okay. Um, I need to go back and reread your book now, like with a whole new lens to, to like look at it. <laughs> Yes. So just as an example, like when, now you can start to see that like when that is what you are focused on, certain themes emerge, whereas there justice, not necessarily on the radar for a three. Right. Justice is not a theme there. It's like, oh, yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, of course we should have a just world. Um, just tell me, like, who to donate to. I'm, I'm busy, you know, um, whereas a one and an eight, that is going to be a huge theme, justice, because 
you know, ones are focusing on good and balance. Fairness is a big thing for the ones. That's a big theme. Um, and so, yes, justice is what balances things. And that's not right. That needs to change. That's where the justice comes in for the one. For the eight, it's like we need to like challenge unjust power. We need to go after that. So that's where the justice comes. So when you get an eight and a one together fighting for justice, it's, it's, it's like, it's good. Um, it gets done. The job yeah. gets done. Yeah. The three will come along if they can, you know, be the head of the charity or something like that, right? So it's like a, the image of being successful at justice. Um, that's how you can get a three in there. Um, but yeah, it's so, so the lens determines what we let in and what we're focused on. So that is where those themes emerge. So if you're trying to figure out what theme to write to, uh, why not align it to something you're already a little bit obsessed about? And it'll be so much easier and you'll get to really work through those problems um, in your own mind of, you know, the questions about what is fair, who gets to determine what's fair? Um, you know, what if something is unfair? Unfair at what point? Maybe it's fair later on, but it's not fair now. Is that okay? Right? So if you're obsessed with fairness, you get to examine that in the course of your story. And that's going to be inspiration. It's going to be fuel. Um, and you just want to make sure that you're going to pick a protagonist who also resonates with that, which is why I generally say it can be really helpful to make your protagonist the same type as you. Okay, so let's talk about that because that's a great segue. Um, the last book I wrote was, <clears throat> without doubt, the most me book I have ever written. And um, I had two women who were um, different, but both very commanding, self-assured, uh, both competitive, but in different ways. Now I'm coming to write the sequel, which is about a different couple, like one of the things I've struggled with is how can I make this book me, but still have it different enough and the characters different enough? I don't want to just write exactly the same thing. So how can you use the Enneagram or how can you how can you continue to write books that are very you while still making each one different? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of connections in the Enneagram. So it's a very fluid framework. So you have numbers on either side of your type that you can kind of access. So those are very familiar to you. Your growth type, your stress type are very familiar to you. Um, you can write characters who are, you know, your partner's type is a really familiar type to you. So whatever they are, you can kind of dip into that with the protagonist. So you can draw on that. But the, also the good thing is that there's really not any theme that's only important to one type you know there are all these life themes there's a few different types that are really fascinated by it and they're going to have a little bit different take on it so if you're writing you know you wrote some very strong characters you can write some characters who are maybe a little bit um quieter or more compassionate and what do they think about that so now you get to explore it from a different lens which is not only a fun challenge but can be a huge, you know, opportunity for growth and learning and stepping outside of our lens. Cause that's sort of the next step. Once we identify, we want to transform just identifying it's the first step and it's a really important step, but some people get stuck in identification and they use it like, well, I'm just at this type. So, you know, you got to deal with my, my difficult behavior, you know? Um, but what you want to do is you want to examine the patterns and start to ask, well, I've been living my whole life through this lens. 
other people have living, been living their whole life through a completely different lens and somehow they've survived, maybe even thrived, God forbid. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I know. And then it's like, but how, how are they so happy not caring about the things that I care about? So um, fiction is a really good place to explore that and to sort of step outside of ourselves because I think something everything, every, every fiction writer experiences is that moment of flow where we stop being ourselves, where we sort of transcend that ego tendency that that keeps us in our, you know, firmly rooted in the personality we've developed, and we get to try other things. So the Enneagram is a good way to make sure that you're doing that and to pretend to be another character and explore this theme that you have such strong beliefs about, explore different beliefs from a different mm. character. It is a challenge though, but I mean, you could write, you could write a, you know, type three character over and over and over again, different characters that are type three. And it's going to look very, very different uh, based on their background, based on their gender, based on the environment, uh, the other characters around them, the conflict you pair, a, 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 you know, a type three antagonist with success versus you type pair a type three antagonist with a theme of, you know, cooperation, it's going to be very different. So, uh, for example, um, let's look at some, I have some lists of different characters. So we have a type five, a couple different type five characters. We have, um, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec is a five. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is also a five. Would you assume that they are the same character or that they, that they are the same type? Maybe not at first glance, they're very different, but they have that same corner motivation. And then we have the six, the loyalist. So Jon Snow is a six. That's all about um, security and connection, social connections and having support and supporting other people. And ultimately it's about finding courage because sixes sort of struggle to find their inner authority. Uh, Mulan is also a six and Dwight Schrute from The Office is also a six. So Dwight Schrute and Jon Snow, both sixes, very, very different. <laughs> is Cersei an eight? See, that's an interesting question. I think she could be an eight. I think she could also be a three. I think she's sort of that powerhouse, but it's like, mm. what is the overlay? Is is she looking for that status because she want, she's the only woman or is she just, you know, is she, is she an eight who says, no, I want power and, you know, screw any man who gets in my way. Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay. It's definitely interesting. It de I definitely think it helps me understand um, hearing you say examples of characters mm -hmm. um, and then pairing that with their, with their number. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's interesting. And it's funny because book two is definitely a quieter book for me. Like book one was like this massive firework of a story and book two is definitely like, it's, it's, it's fiery, but it's like, I don't know how to explain it. If one is a firework, the other one is like, like a simmering molten volcano. So it's like, it's still the same fire. It's still fire, but it's like a different type mm -hmm. of burn, but I'm finding that hard because I'm, I'm like, and I'm, I'm trying, but it's hard. Like, because uh -huh. it's not, I'm, I'm a firework. Like, that is what I am. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. And I definitely think maybe I need to, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need to look. Yeah. I don't know. I, my head is, my intellection's going all over the place. Um, <laughs> okay. So one of my patrons, Erica, says, I'm currently reading Claire's book and I'm loving it. Uh, I'm a type one and I'd love for Claire to elaborate on how to use the Enneagram to 
develop a fully fleshed out antagonist in relation to our protagonist and theme? Yeah, so the the Enneagram shows us how to make any type pretty villainous um, in those unhealthy levels, but it also keeps it from being a stock character, which is really important to me. I love my antagonists. I think it's a fun, safe place to be very bad, which you could probably guess is, is I need a fun, safe place to be bad. Um, <laughs> and so what you want to do is you want to pick your protagonist. You want to figure out... Um, how you want your theme to go, what theme you want. So there's almost this triangle between the antagonist and the protagonist and the theme. So let's say your protagonist, since she's a one, we'll say we have a type one protagonist, do the right thing. And then we're gonna do a theme of, let's pick a theme. It doesn't have to be one that, that is listed. Also, I have these in the book, but you, these are this is not an exhaustive list. Um, We'll say responsibility, a theme of responsibility. What, who is responsible for what, you know, that sort of thing. Um, ones have a overwhelming sense of responsibility uh, that, that dives into personal obligation. So then you have maybe an antagonist who is, let's say a seven. And I'm gonna pick a seven because sevens are the enthusiasts. They want something new. They're looking at the world through this pleasure pain lens. And so uh, their fear is being trapped in deprivation uh, or trapped in pain. And so they function on a certain level of FOMO at all times. They wanna do all the things. The sevens have done all the things. Um, their challenge is really to start to bring that breadth into depth. Um, and, and focus in some of their interests. But they're very fun, lively people. They always have a good tale to tell. Um, and they are sometimes irresponsible. Okay, very, that's frequent. It's very frequent for the seven. So now you have an antagonist who is irresponsible, but the seven is also the growth type of the one. So ones, as ones start to sort through some of these um, patterns of obligation that we've developed thinking that if we do all the good things we'll be a good person uh spoiler you can't do all the good things life's too complicated but so ones are attaching morality to everything right that's the right thing that's the wrong thing um as an example i was at a sushi restaurant the other night and it was like you know half price on the rolls and i was like oh i'll get the snow crab roll and i'll get the spicy tuna roll and i don't really like the spicy tuna roll but like ordering two snow crab rolls just seemed really indulgent to me. And like, that's not the right, you don't just order two of the same roll. And as soon as I ordered it and the waitress walked away, I turned to my husband, and I was like, John, what the hell is wrong with me? Why didn't I just get two snow crab rolls? Like, it's just, it's so <laughs> instinctive to just assign <clears throat> stupid, meaningless morality to things for once. Anyway, so um, as as a one kind of sorts through those those things and starts to notice those patterns, they can spend a lot more time uh feeling like a seven right the sort of freedom and joyful feeling of life so it's it's um it, you basically want to start thinking okay if i what's the right thing to do is what the one's default is what's the right thing to do and then doing that uh, but there's a lot of right things to do so how do you narrow down that criteria so for the one the healthy way is to go what of all the right things to do which ones are the most fun and then i'll do those and that so, is a very healthy space for the for the one Go ahead. Is it is it opposite then? So the seven's growth type is a one. The seven's stress type is a one. So ah. it goes the other way. 
So under stress, the sevens become very critical of themselves. So these are, this is a really interesting interplay and it's around this theme of responsibility. So the seven is, if the seven is an unhealthy seven, uh, let's say our antagonist is more of the villainous antagonist, um, they are going to be dangling this carrot of living their life, you know, maybe they're not seeing a lot of consequences for being irresponsible, which is going to drive the one up the wall, right? Because the one is like, how come it's basically envy, it's resentment, it's envy um, of they are doing something that I'm not allowing myself to do. And they're enjoying it and they're not being punished. Right. So that is really going to to come into conflict between those those two, that that theme of responsibility, because the, the one probably thinks they're responsible for way more than any one person should be. And the seven is not taking responsibility for the things that they probably should be responsible for. So now you have that triangle of that tension between those two and you just let it play out. Right. If you need the the one to be driven forward into conflict with the seven. You have the seven do something really fun, get a lot of attention, maybe get some praise um, that the one wants, right? But they can't get it because they can't allow themselves um, to just let go and accept that they are allowed to have fun and that life doesn't have to feel like a chore. So that is sort of an example of how you use the antagonist. Now you could pick any antagonist, right? You can pick any type of antagonist. You could pick an antagonist who's a four, which is the one's stress type, or you could pick an antagonist who's a three. A one and a three are a really interesting pair because they both get a lot done. Both can be workhorses. Um, but as an example, my high school rival was a three. And I, as a one, it's not good enough when I know that I've gotten the 100. It's good enough when I think it's perfect, which is way beyond. So I would stay up till one in the morning getting projects done um, and she would show up with the bare minimum to get a good grade and the bare she met the expectations. She got the grade. Great. I got the number. And so she was living a much easier life than I was. And I was resentful um, because I was like, how is she going to, you know, and some nights, some days she would say, you know, oh, I didn't, I forgot to do that. And she would give the teacher such hell that they extended the deadline. And I'm sitting there like, you know, like a doofus just holding this, you know, prize winning project that I stayed up till 2 a.m. doing to make sure that I got it done on time. And now the deadline's extended. So that's kind of the tension between the one and the three. The, the three wants to perform well for others. The one performs uh, on high standards set by themselves. So that would be a really interesting, um, you know, protagonist, antagonist. And the thing that, theme that might emerge could be something like value, right? Or, um, hmm, it could be something like worth, value. I, that's kind of where I'm going, you know, like the one values themselves based on how good they are and the three values themselves based on sort of um, outward approval until they, you know, until there's that growth. So yeah, each, each type can, you can pair any two types and there's going to be sort of a, a theme that emerges in the overlap. This is super fascinating. I, the, I don't remember seeing in the book, the growth type and stress type is that that's not in the book is it i no, i don't think i talk too much about it but if you look at the actual diagram there's arrows so um oh, the arrows okay. right so one is pointing towards the stress type one is pointing towards the, or, or pointing towards the growth type and away from the stress type so 
Um, yeah, it's three, six, and nine are form like a triangle in that. So if you're uh, a nine, your growth type is three, your stress type six. If you're a six, your growth type's nine, your stress type's three, and so on. So sometimes when people are in the three, six, nine, one of those, it's really hard to type them because you have to differentiate, well, what is their growth? What is their security? What's their actual dominant type? Because you see all three. Um, but the other, the other six numbers are kind of like, there's just a weird shape to it and it, they're not connected in that way. Okay. Um, oh my gosh, so many questions, so many questions and we are rapidly running out of time as well. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to get scan through my question about writing note that oh, I'm good. like, <laughs> I'm like, just, I'm like, awe-inspired. I just sat here, like, just captured, encaptured by you, trying to listen, like, remember everything. We have to come back and write notes. Um, <laughs> okay, I think we kind of covered the wound stuff. So Jeff, Jeff asked about wounds. I think we've done that. Okay, so let's talk about brand and alignment. How does... <sighs> it's it's so it's almost like being the rebel <laughs> oh. I mean I didn't want to say it <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I made a bit of a wisecrack joke in my email pitch to Claire which was like oh I want to type me I think it's the thing. I was in the podcast the whole time. <laughs> okay, okay. Ooh, let's talk about branding and alignment. And um, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, once you start to understand your type, you start to see these sorts of qualities emerge, um, theoretically. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm gonna have to meet myself because I'm cackling so <laughs> um so for instance my my company is called FFS Media which stands for for fuck's sake media and that is sort of the attitude that emerges from just who I am and my lens is I just see so many people just doing what I believe to be the wrong thing all the time just the wrong where I'm like fuck's sake, just do what you're supposed to do. Like, why is this so hard? Um, and that's really the the sentiment of a lot of my humor that I write. Uh, and so it, it also is a little bit um, subversive, right? Uh, also, I curse like a sailor. So it's, it's just all, a whole thing. So that was kind of how my brand came out. And so when I'm trying to make decisions about, um, you know, how to market, how to how to write to my list. Uh, there is this voice inside of me that's like, oh, Claire, don't say fuck on the internet. And then I'm like, that is not me. I don't know whose voice that is, but it ain't me, right? So we start to differentiate who we are, who we are not, and really what we're bringing to the table. Um, so honesty is one of the things that I think that my type brings to the table, honesty, truth, just bluntness, but in, a, in sort of a helpful way. And, you know, eights have been called blunt before too. Um, fives can be a little bit blunt. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's each type has 
virtues of the type. And some of those virtues are not super prized by the culture that you're in. And so you can really discredit those virtues. Um, and like, I'm not getting all religious here, the virtue, it's just called virtues, but it's like, um, for instance, the seven, the enthusiast virtues are joy and freedom, right? In, in America, we, we value one of those, uh, freedom, but we kind of discredit joy as this frivolous thing. Like, why do you need joy? You're just supposed to be a cog, you know? And so the sevens um, grow up a lot of times feeling like they have nothing to offer. They're like, well, I'm just flaky. I'm not, I lack depth, you know, I can't sit still in class. So I'm not a good student, you know, all these different things that, that sevens are not valued for. But when a seven realizes they're a seven, when an enthusiast, enthusiast author realizes they're an enthusiast author, they go, oh, I can leave all these exclamation points in here. <laughs> that's fine. That's that's actually a gift that I'm bringing in my correspondence with people. And so then they can unleash that enthusiasm that they have been told was too much or fr frivolous or a sign of low intelligence or whatever they've been told their whole life. And so they're bringing that and they're by letting that shine, everyone is like hungry for that enthusiasm and that fun and that just good time. And th they become this like lighthouse of it, you know, the seven. And so everyone knows that's where they're going. So this, you know, if, if I'm in a bad mood and I just need something light, I'm going to my seven. When I am like at home being, you know, sad girl over here, I'm like, I'm going to call up my friends who are a seven. And, and it's not like I have like in my phone, everyone's Enneagram type save. That would be weird. Um, but I, <laughs> I have it saved in my mind, but instinctively we gravitate towards those things. Um, but there's just so much in society, depending on the society, depend, it will depend on what, you know, or will determine what is suppressed, but there are a lot of qualities that are devalued and we want to value those, whatever is natural to you, because we need all nine types functioning on, you know, just all, all systems go um, to have a really healthy society. And we need each type at different times in our life. So we want to make sure that we're bringing those gifts and letting them shine and broadcasting them through the kinds of stories we write, the tones, the characters, the themes, um, the way we market, the way we communicate with readers, and all of the parts of being an author, just the way we schedule our lives, um, respecting our values and the way that we schedule our time and the amount of energy we put towards parts of our business. And, and so that it really comes through and we can be there when people need that virtue and value it in ourselves. Okay. And it would be remiss of me, everybody drink, uh, not to mention strengths. And so I suppose my last question is a lot of the listeners <laughs> have been persuaded to get their Clifton strengths. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and so I just wondered, I know that uh, you, you know, are an Enneagram consultant, but I also know that you've spoken with Becca and you know, you know, about strength. So is there a way we can work with both? Like, how can they marry mm -hmm. to be super helpful? Like, is there, yeah, is, is there kind of any marriage between them or, or any benefit to, to use them both? Yeah, absolutely. I use both. Um, Ooh, what, uh, are and, and, what are your strengths? What are your strengths? I am number one strategic, uh, number two activator, number three individualization, number four ideation, and number five analytical. And then it's like command, which I think is 
probably where I start to look a little like an eight, mm-hmm. um, achiever, where I start to look a little like a three. And then I have, I think, learner, relator, and uh, uh, why can't I think intellect, intellection? Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, is that mm-hmm. the one? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are my top 10. Love um, it. yeah. So I think that they pair really well and you start to see how you, you have the lens, right? The lens is, is telling you where you need to go and the strengths are like almost how you get there. Um, and we could have a very spirited debate on, do you develop strengths that support your Enneagram type and your desires or what? Uh, that's all up for debate. There's not research on that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that they work really well together. So when I feel stuck, I have these type one patterns that start to thought patterns, sort of scripts um, that start to come into play. And I can look at my strengths and go, oh, do I, why do I feel so bad? Okay, probably my strategic is, is stuck. I don't know the, the you know, most right path, moral yeah. or best way forward. Yeah, yeah, right? okay. Um, and my activator <clears throat> is like, that activator, I really, you know, it's not going to be a one-to-one correlation with any type. There's just not a one-to-one correlation between a type and strengths, but I do tend to see a lot of clusters and sort of constellations of, of certain types that are associated with certain, uh, or certain strengths that are associated with certain types. Let um, me guess, there are loads of yellow strengths who are eights, like I would be <laughs> gobsmacked if that wasn't the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. And like fives tend to have a lot of those like slower thinking intellection strengths, uh, intellection, learner, um, input. I see a lot of those in fives um, in their top five or top 10. Right. It's not like a necessarily like an order. Because um, when I when I consult with clients, I ask them, like, do you want to tell me anything else like your strengths? And almost everyone in this industry has talked to Becca. Right. So they know <laughs> they, they know the strengths. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, great. OK, so this is just my own little, you know, my number five analytical going, ooh, what are the connections? Mm-hmm. Um, and it also like I score high on eight and three and five, and I have a lot of seven in me. It's my growth type. And so I look at my strengths. I'm like, oh, okay, activator. That's, that's kind of like a seven strength, but it's very gut based strength. It's like, oh, I got to go now. Um, and type one is, is the gut in the gut triad individualization. That's almost like a nine wing sort of thing. You go your ideation. That's almost like my type four creativity. Analytical is very much that five sort of finding the patterns. So that's just all conjecture. But I think the two work really well together because one is very much that emotion space. So the Enneagram is like, what is happening on that emotional level? And how is that clashing with my philosophical beliefs or my you know, beliefs about the world that I've developed um, through my type or through the type of a parent or a community or, you know, a religious group or the country I live in. Um, so, so I think that both of those tools are really, really useful. It tends to go back to, okay, what, for me, it's like, okay, what is the Enneagram one issue I'm running into? Because each type kind of has these these issues that appear that that manifest from the attention that you're giving. And so how is that? Um, how is that showing up? And how how can I use my strengths as tools? And how are they currently um, working against me to get so, me out of this spot? So do do the the types have a pre- prevailing emotion? 
because I always quip that I'm like dead on the inside and I am for the most mm-hmm. part dead on the inside, but I'm also a bit of a conniption. So if I am going to have a display of emotions, it's either going to be an absolute fit of rage or it's going to be like an absolute like hysterical excitement and there's not really anything in between. So like, yes. are there prevailing emotions that each type mm-hmm. tends to feel? <clears throat> Yes, there are a lot of them. Um, so for the eight, it is the one of the hallmarks of eight is struggling with vulnerability, emotional vulnerability. And so um, it's really not processing that until. So you um, mean like it, claiming that I have no emotions so that I don't ever have to share those emotions and feel vulnerable? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. <laughs> um, I am and then, so not eight. The eight, nine, and one. The eight, nine, and one are in what's called the anger triad, and so um, that. <laughs> so we deal with we 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 have to come up against this anger thing. So nines completely detach from anger; they don't even realize that it's there, and it turns into passive aggression in a lot of their. Um, and that's a result of their focus on not having conflict and not feeling disconnected or cut off from other people. So to avoid conflict, you have to pretend that a lot of stuff is not happening. Um, and so that, that they become disconnected. For the ones our struggle with anger is that we feel it and we will hold it in until we feel like it, we can transform it into something righteous and then we can let it out. Um, which sometimes there is no right way, um, especially if you're a woman, there's no right way to be angry. Uh, so that can lead to a blow up. I have kicked a hole in the wall before. Um, no one was injured. Uh, okay. Three times, but no one was injured. <laughs> and in my defense, one was the week of the whole Brett Kavanaugh hearing. So somebody, you know, I, I feel like a saint that that's what it took. But, um, and then the, the eights just sort of are very comfortable with that anger and may overexpress it but it's it, it is just a a thing that you live in and it's not really like rage it's like aggression it's intensity so the the sort of vice of the eight is lust but not like a sexual lust but like a lust and a zealous or like a passion for life so oh very gosh. intense very powerhouse type um and that's just the nature of the eight and so eights could maybe benefit from examining that anger and saying what emotion is causing this. And that's kind of the key, you know, the the way into the emotions thing for the eight is. This is so fascinating to me because so this new series is an homage to female rage. Like I'm literally writing angry women and mm-hmm. and like it's super spicy. So like, okay, yeah, like you said, it wasn't necessarily sexual lust, but uh, okay, there is some of that in her. But also, like, I have been called intense. I have been called passionate. Like, this is so. This is. I'm just. This is too much. This is too much for me. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, none I'm, of its flaws. You're just an eight. Yeah, just like a hardcore eight. Um. Okay. I'm going to have to stop because otherwise I'm literally going to pick your brains all day long. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone, this is the most eight question ever. Oh my God. <laughs> tell everyone. I hate being in a box. Tell everyone about <laughs> you unleashed your inner rebel. Okay. Um, yeah, I I would say that one of the times I unleashed my inner rebel was when I wrote seven books 
in the Jessica Christ series, a comedy about God's daughter born in Texas. I live in Texas, <laughs> wow. so everything you've heard about Texas is true um, in parts of it. But yeah, so that was that was a big a big step for me because I knew that people were going to be mad, and I had to really check in with myself. And I realized that I didn't care. Uh, I didn't care if people were mad because I felt so righteous <laughs> writing about how if God had a daughter in Texas, everyone would have to deal with their sexism issues uh, and no one would know how to deal with it. And I wrote, a, you know, God speaks to his daughter and he doesn't know how to deal with it. Um, and so, yeah, it's that that was that was a little bit rebellious, I'd say my 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 parents still don't really mention the series. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Okay, well, I want to know more. So tell everyone where they can find out more about you, where they can find out more about the Enneagram, perhaps how it relates to writing, your courses, um, like anything else that you would like to add. Uh, well, it's all at ffs.media. So that is where uh, I publish my nonfiction. I have all my courses and I also have my fiction listed there. Um, if anyone is interested, but it, yeah, it, it's not for everyone clearly. So um, yeah, ffs.media. And if you want to email me contact at ffs.media, and if you want to receive my emails contact or <laughs> ffs.media forward slash join. And are you going to write another book? Oh man, probably, I don't want to, but I, I, I want you will. to. <laughs> What, what what should it be about, Sasha? Oh, definitely diving into I think the the using the uh, growth and the stress and like the like the protagonist and the antagonist and how it all applies to character. Like I'm obsessed with character. Like I find mm -hmm. it fascinating. So I think yeah, like and and maybe I mean this is just me geeking out now, but like deconstructing stuff that is out already out movies I don't know like the the interplay between <clears throat> the 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 stress type and the oh, I can I will send you a whole email yeah, about yeah. all the stuff just <laughs> send me a book brief and I'll get it I'll get it knocked out <laughs> oh well thank you so much for your time today and of course a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons if you would like to get early access to all of the episodes you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black i'm sasha black you are listening to claire taylor and this was the rebel author podcast Next week, there is no guest. It is all me, and it is my annual Lessons Learned, only this time it is from four years of writing full-time. And I hope that I have a voice <laughs> left to do this episode uh, next week, which will, yeah, hopefully be a good one for you. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.